Episode 265, The What, The How, and The Questionable Why of Digital Therapeutic Formularies. Today, I speak with Randy Vogenberg, Ph.D., board chairperson at the Employer Provider Interface Council and principal at the Institute for Integrated Healthcare. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. There is a lot going on with digital health tools these days. Which ones are the good ones? And which ones are nothing burgers packaged up in beautiful marketing? That's a good question, and it would be nice to have a go-to source for such information. Some parties, mainly PBMs, and to some extent payers and providers, recognize that this actually would be nice, and they see that creating digital formularies could be an opportunity to grow revenue for their shareholders by meeting a market need, potentially, and offering additional services to the marketplace. But the term formulary implies more than just some kind of health technology assessment. It implies, at least at some level, the promise of reimbursement. But mm, given how local healthcare tends to be, especially when considering patient populations and the bottom-up nature of the doctor-patient relationship, here's the question I have for you. Is it even possible for a third party disconnected from the care setting and the patient to top down, select the technology which will be used and reimbursed, especially in the age of consumerism. For more on the intersection of patients and provider digital tool selections, listen to episode 250 with Vicky Tiazzi from New York Presbyterian. Today, I am speaking with Randy Vogenberg, PhD. Randy suggests that a more crowdsourced approach to digital health tool selection might be in order here. He says that those who are using the tools really need to have a seat at the table. He says that possibly the formulary within any given organization should be more of a consensus among stakeholders and less of a mandate from on high. But there are a lot of wrinkles, like lots of wrinkles. Randy Vogenberg is board chairperson at the Employer Provider Interface Council. He's principal over at the Institute for Integrated Healthcare. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Randy Vogenberg, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Thank you, Stacey. Digital formularies. What's a digital formulary, Randy? Well, interestingly, there really isn't a formal term known as a digital formulary. When we talk about a formulary, all it really is is a list of products that you would have available in an organization. So PBMs, which are obviously one of the entities in the patient journey. And as we all know, because we all read stat news, there is a lot going on with PBMs right now. They are getting called on the carpet in state after state for spread pricing, for rebates, for all kinds of stuff. And furthermore, adding one additional complication, I mean, there's not that many patients that aren't already accounted for. So the only way to grow business, if you're looking at the traditional PBM business model, would be to take a patient from somebody else. 
So if I'm looking to grow the market and satisfy my shareholders, I need to come up with new things to do. What I'm understanding is that, at least from a PBM perspective, them adding digital formularies is a way to expand their service set and thereby grow their potential revenue channels. You're exactly correct. And they have to figure out what is their business going to look like as we go forward over the next 10 to 20 years through the healthcare transformation. What I'm understanding from what you're saying, Randy, is that the idea here is a PBM, at least from a PBM perspective, is that they do the same thing that they claim to be doing with pharmaceuticals. I think it's going to be a bigger lift for the PBMs to really be effective with digital health like they were with the traditional pharmaceutical drug products. Why do you think that? We've had a variety of change happen over the last four years, which was kicked off by the 21st Century Cures Act that was signed in December 2016. And that did a bunch of different things, which began to change the landscape. Not only were we going to have a speed up in the development, novel drug products, but also with medical products. And a subset of that is medical software and certain types of so-called medical software, which we would think about as digital health, are no longer considered a medical device and therefore is not regulated as a device. That opened up the door for a PBM as opposed to a health plan to get involved and look at what can we be doing to provide a service around digital health. And how does this intersect with medical plans? Or are all PBMs and medical plans becoming one entity? So this is an irrelevant question. Because I know that there's a lot of traditional insurance carriers or ASOs that are attempting to do the same thing, that they're trying to become, in quotes, great aggregators of services, digital therapeutics and digital health tools being kind of one of them. Is everybody trying to create their own formulary now and jump on who gets to have the ultimate formulary? I think the reality today is primarily the PBMs that have jumped on this formulary. When you look at the continuum of digital health, part of the reason why they did this is there is a series of digital medicines which are now coming into the marketplace, which are some type of a combination of a drug with some type of a device that may be monitoring or may have to do with the delivery of the drug. That's where they've pinned their basis for saying, well, we have a role because somehow, some way, there's a drug involved, even though there is a medical device that is part of it or attached to it. So there was a giant messy middle here, and maybe the PBMs kind of got sucked into it because they sort of had to. Well, they saw an opportunity from your previous comments about them looking for new opportunities to grow their business because a lot of the early devices that are tied with a drug are in areas like inhalers and insulin pens and other injectables that are being adapted to use sensors. And those have been traditional areas where PBMs have been trying to play and show value to their customers. And, and so these are all kind of tied together in that way. But how big that's going to be along the entire continuum of digital health is still uncertain. That's where the health plans will come back in with the more traditional medical devices or those that require regulation by FDA for approved use, as opposed to an Apple Watch, as an example, and some of the other digital tracking devices that are ubiquitous already in the marketplace. I'm almost feeling, based on what you're saying, that there's 
a land grab, which is currently transpiring amongst PBMs, amongst plans. I mean, you've got IDNs and larger health systems who are also trying to figure out how they're going to play in this space. Is that correct, number one? And then number two, how does this benefit patients? Is this basically the healthcare industry doing what the healthcare industry does and trying to figure out how to make money? Or is this in some way contributing to the value of the healthcare delivered and helping patients actually reduce the burden and the financial toxicity which currently exists? There's no question that there is tremendous turmoil in the market. And with that comes land grabbing and plotting out your turf in the marketplace. The difficulty is we're in a multidimensional transformation of the healthcare marketplace. That's being buffeted by a tremendous rise in consumerism. There's an awful lot going on right now, making it very difficult to see a clear path in the marketplace. Do you see PBMs effectively trying to reproduce their pharmaceutical business model in the digital health space? In other words, they're going to have a formulary and then they're going to go to the digital health, the startup or the entrepreneur and say, all right, well, if you want to be on my formulary, then you've got to, here's the rebate I want, trying to figure out how to do a spread price. That model is probably dead. To your earlier point about where we stand today with how a formula operates, particularly in the PBM world, a couple of years more than likely totally transform itself because rebates, discounts, and other things really don't resonate with anybody anymore. We're looking for transparency. We're looking for net cost. So you don't think that a PBM could go to a digital entrepreneur and say, I've got 33 million patients and I will offer your digital therapeutic to those millions of patients, but you got to give me a discount or you got to give me a rebate. PBMs, their model is being forced to change because they got to get rid of rebates and discounts and they have to increase their transparency. Congress and the president is pushing for that. It will follow that the same thing's going to happen with digital. Even though today they can do what you're suggesting, they can try and control the access to these products. That's going to be very limited very quickly by this change that's going to happen around how they have built their business model, which has been very opaque. Mark Bloom from America's Agenda called it arbitrage, full on. I think you have to remember that we're really talking about a limited number or areas of digital health where particularly a PBM could really justify what kind of value they may be able to provide. What we're also seeing in the market today when when there's so many questions being asked and more of the onion being peeled back in the current business model, particularly with PBMs, not so much with health plans, is that why do we need all this? And, And consumers are asking the same question. What do they know that we don't know? If my medical doctor is saying this is what you need, why is my PBM saying, no, you can't have that. You need to use something else. And what's the value to me? The current system is kind of caught up with itself and is tripping over itself because it's so complicated. And it's hard for them to clearly talk about what is their value to these key stakeholders, whether it's an employer who's the plan sponsor, whether it's the employee who's the consumer or patient in this, and certainly the hospitals and doctors. We don't see this kind of model operate in Medicare, by the way. I see certain health plans. They are using and advocating for certain digital health tools because their case managers are using them. There is actual usage by that party of the tool. 
and I see health systems, the endocrine department or the pop health group, and they are saying that we would like to use this digital health tool because they themselves are using it. Which is different if you think about it, like I'm just beginning to think about it, thanks to your insights, Randy. A PBM is definitely a third party to any of those interactions. It might make more sense for a plan that's doing patient counseling and, and case management or a provider organization that's obviously taking care of patients or a patient who's obviously the patient selecting and determining what tools are being used because they're using them. That's a great observation. You're right. That's one of the inherent differences between the health plan and a PBM, partly because health plans have always been involved with managing risk, which is the principle of insurance, whereas PBMs don't. They are strictly a financial manager. That's a, an inherent conflict. So when we look at the mergers that have happened, we've created these vertical integrations that are inherently conflicted within their own operations. That's going to be a challenge for those groups, the Caremark and Express Script side as an example. How do they work effectively with their medical side of the house, the health plan, where the movement is towards more integrated care and using digital health and digital tools to improve the ability to manage risk. It would seem like there is an opportunity for somebody to vet tools. On the employer side, we have the Validation Institute out of Maine. They are running analytics and know exactly how to validate a claim by a digital therapeutic and assess whether that claim is actually valid. There is a lot of ways. You can make a statistic say pretty much anything that you want if you cut the data the right way. And a lot of entities are quite clever at making that happen. So we could see that there's an opportunity for somebody to create a formulary or at least validate these tools and put them on a short list so that if I'm your average entity, patient, health plan, whatever, I don't have to go through that same exercise myself. Part of it is we have to get through this early stage where there's a lot of startups and there's different kinds of companies. Some are better than others and they have different aspects of the technologies that are better than somebody else's product. And all that has to get sorted out. And so we got to go through a few years of that. And then it's going to settle down into we have some discrete options. I mean, there's 5,000 or more digital health solutions out there. Every time I turn around, there's some CIO, you know, chief innovation officer or someone who is working in the digital health space at, for example, a health system who I'm talking to them on the phone and they say, I couldn't leave you a voicemail because it's full. And they're like, yeah, you know, just your average <laughs> Tuesday, it's filled up with digital health. You know, everybody's pitching me. So I feel like I would really like to see some of these assessing organizations thrive because a couple of different things. Number one, consider the implications that everyone is now realizing with privacy and the sale of data and all of the stuff that Facebook, for one, and Google and, and others are currently accused of. I don't think your average consumer could have realized that five, 10 years down the line, they would now have all of their data compromised, including all their medical data. So it's very difficult for your average consumer to vet cybersecurity or privacy 
number one. And maybe you can say, oh, well, we're smart now because look what consumers demanded in California, for example. But yeah, there's going to be stuff that's very sophisticated that I don't know that you can crowdsource the right answer. It's like crowdsourcing science to a certain extent. It doesn't work great. But then number two, if I'm your average health system or whatever, I, I think I would like to look to an authority to be able to cut through the marketing. Because if you're pressed for time, sometimes what you wind up doing is choosing a solution that you really understand well. Why? Because their marketing is great, not necessarily because their solution is great. I think we're kind of coming full circle to a certain extent back to the original purpose of something like a pharmacy and therapeutics committee within a, a hospital organization. Part of the original purpose was to provide that kind of a function, a clearinghouse, and then working with other P&T committees in your community, in your state, around the country, etc., to share that kind of knowledge and information. That's an area where we're going to see more of that. And part of the problem has been if you have too many validation organizations out there, which is what we were getting into back in the day in the last century, and that kind of thinned out. We only have a handful left because we didn't need a lot of that anymore. Now we have crowdsourcing and maybe the direction we're going to go as opposed to we go to medical meetings today and everybody talks to everybody else that way. Now we can do the same thing in a virtual world and do it faster and maybe more accurately because we have more voices being heard. There's a lot of change happening is the bottom line. And hopefully it, it aligns towards making better health happen as well. From what I'm understanding you're recommending is that instead of having validating bodies because they tend to blossom and then you get 50 validating entities and nobody agrees and you almost have to have a validating entity for the validating entity, right? Like that becomes right. messy fast. Right. It sounds like what you're suggesting is that it's done at a very local level. So you have a health system that does a deep dive into the best app for insert something disease category or patient type or something here, right? So they determine that of the options available on the marketplace that this one and that one are the most viable. They go to a medical meeting. They say, look, here's our case study. We've used this one. It actually works. And then everybody, all of the other CIOs and medical directors who are at that meeting say, oh, that's very interesting. I'm going to take your advice and use this one instead of going through the math all by myself, or I'm going to take yours and augment it with what I learned. In other words, it's more of a collaborative, organic type of vetting as opposed to a formal inorganic process. Even though some kinds of medical software don't have to go through FDA review per se, there, there's a risk assessment because ultimately we don't want to harm anybody. We don't want the patient to harm themselves either. If you're just using a simple wireless device or mobile medical application of some sort, the, the chance for harm is pretty low. At the other end, you got the digital medicines and the digital therapeutics where it could cause a lot of harm. So you would want to have more rigor and more professional input, particularly down to the local level, because that's where it's going to be prescribed and utilized. And what has to overarch all of this, which is becoming more obvious, I think, today, is this issue of cybersecurity. So we have to do all these digital health applications and therapeutics correctly, but we also do it in a way in which it's all cybersecure. 
And let's also bring up the other elephant in the room besides cybersecurity, which is reimbursement. Yeah, so reimbursement is is interesting. So that's the other application or use of some type of a decision-making organization like a PBM. I think that's been so tainted because of the rebates and discount games that have been going on that everybody now knows about that there's a lot of distrust for the particularly third parties doing a lot of that. The number one cause for a personal bankruptcy is healthcare. That's a big issue within the healthcare community. So how reimbursement happens and what the rules are are under much more scrutiny than they have ever been. So how that evolves, I think, is still more of a question mark about how we're going to do reimbursement. What do you think about the stance that some take that digital health tools are not going to be reimbursed and therefore won't reach their full potential until value-based care becomes ubiquitous? Because there's very little value prop for a provider to have anything to do with digital health tools. Actually, it could be disincented because if you've got a computer doing something, then a human can't do it. And therefore, you can only charge for humans. So in a way, a digital tool is stealing revenue. Sure, that comes up uh, very frequently. I was just at a conference on Friday where that came up in our conversations here in South Carolina, looking at how do we reset healthcare in in just one state, let alone the whole country. How we reimburse, who we reimburse, and, and what's a reimbursable service has become a big question in the marketplace. And that corresponds to some degree of how we determine what is value. So with this array of digital health, they all have different levels of value to different people. And so that has to get sorted out to a certain extent. And it's probably not all going to be covered by some type of a insurance program. It may be part of an integrated solution. We see a little bit of that with the concept of the ACO and Medicare Advantage. But in the commercial space, they're still trying to sort out what role do these digital health products have in relationship to outcomes of care? And are we reducing health problems to the extent that we're now going to have fewer ER visits, fewer hospitalizations and so forth? So show some tangible results coming out of the use of these digital health products. The way that I liken this, too, is it's the principal agent problem, wherein the one making the decisions does not necessarily have the same goals and mission as the one they're making the decisions for. You had mentioned mm-hmm. patients and it's like 66% of bankruptcies in this country today have some connection to medical. The U.S. used to be the greatest creditor in the world and now we're the greatest debtor. And it's like 20, 25% of that debt is correlated with healthcare. You've got kind of battle lines being drawn uh, and I hate right. to put it in such stark terms, but it's like taxpayers, patients, and employers versus the healthcare industry. And those that are making decisions, whether or not we use digital therapeutics, are on the side where, you know, what they say, one man's cost is another man's profit. So, you know, you've got the healthcare industry that's looking to try to figure out how to maximize revenue, maximize throughput versus the patient who's like, yeah, why don't I use the chatbot? Because that's costless. So that will actually take money out of 
the system, and I'm simplifying this, obviously, I could see that digital therapeutics are going to get caught in that crossfire because at this juncture, all of the incentives are being interpreted. Those in control have every incentive to not reduce costs. Yeah, so the effort by CMS and commercial insurer to move away from fee-for-service has certainly been a slow move to a more value-based construct. So you're, you're absolutely right. We're, we're in this point in the marketplace where it's them against us to a certain extent, and, and that's a big problem. And so hospitals clearly are trying to figure out how do they reposition what they're doing and still be financially stable. The medical practitioners, whether they're independent or part of a health system, they're going through those same conversations. We have direct-to-patient contracting now, where physicians are contracting with their patients. We're playing around with a lot of different things right now to figure out what is this going to look like over the next few years. So it is very messy out there right now. And if I'm a patient thinking about this, or if I'm a doctor, I am thinking to myself, I can figure out how to use a digital tool and I can see how it would benefit my patients. Like I want to use a digital tool, but it's costly and I can't afford it myself and my patient can't afford it. What's going to happen? If I'm asking this question a year from now, what's the equation going to look like? Is it hopeful or is it going to be, you're going to either have to figure out how to pay for it yourself because there's still not going to be necessarily a reimbursement mechanism in place. Yeah, it's a real conundrum. I think what that timeline is going to look like, how fast it's going to happen. Unfortunately, we're in a presidential election cycle, and and that's going to slow everything down in terms of making some decisions from the congressional level, even down to the state level, because so many uh, seats are open in those contests at the uh, local level. It's a real problem for the consumer side, particularly when we're looking at digital medicines and digital therapeutics that are a lot more pricey than the traditional old generic drugs uh, that we like to talk about. There's going to be people that are going to fall through the cracks. We're going to have problems around how do we, if we're a care provider, make sure that our patient can get this type of a digital health solution uh, that we know will be better for them. Even though it's kind of ugly, coming out of this, I think we'll have a much better definition of how do we begin to value certain things and how we place a value on it and what's really going to be worthy of reimbursement, perhaps a different lens to assess a value of these products and who will have access to these products through different kinds of programs, whether it's insurance or the different types of state-administered health programs. From what you just said, what I'm understanding is that a third party figures out what's reimbursable, in which case we've come full circle to if they're figuring, if, if you've got a third party that's figuring out what to reimburse for, then you've got a digital formulary that's administered by somebody that's not part of the action. The change that we have now realized is that there's only two major payors in the healthcare system in the United States, and that's the government and it's the private sector employers and state programs or unions. And they're going to be telling their administrators of their programs, this is what we're going to do. This is what we're going to change. You have voters impacting CMS through Congress and through the private sector, you have employees affecting their employers in terms of what do they want and what are they going to be willing to pay for. Then it comes back down to those third parties, but they're not going to be in as much a position of decision making as they used to be. It's going to be much more of a collaborative effort. And we already see that happening in the marketplace. 
So when you say collaborative effort, you mean that providers and there's payviders popping up all over the place. So effectively, that it's going to be providers who are collaborating with employers trying to figure out which digital therapeutics they're overlapping patient panels, patient populations will use and are, are reimbursable. Is that what the future looks like? So there'll be that collaborative effort, a team, uh, which would include who is paying the bill, part of which is the consumer themselves, that are going to be making these decisions that we're going to see in what we call today a health plan. So we're going to see a kind of a reconstruction of how things flow and how decisions are being made that will affect how products will be paid for or reimbursed. I look at it as an opportunity to establish a way in which all these different key stakeholders can work more effectively together. And that includes the patient. The patient has to be involved, both on the financial side as well as on the care side of this. And digital health, as it begins to mature and become more obvious what the, what the lines are between the different types of digital health and so forth, that we're going to be in a better position to make decisions, both from a financial perspective as well as to, in a more positive way, impacting care, thereby delivering value, which is what everybody's searching for right now that we don't seem to have clearly established in our current healthcare system. Randy, if someone is interested in learning more about the work that you are doing, where can they go for information about it? Sure, they can check out our website at www.iih-healthcare.com. You can also look at a couple other sites that we work with, the Employer Provider Interface Council, which is epicouncil.org, or work that we're doing with Rutgers University and their Hope Center at the Ernest Mario School of Pharmacy. Fantastic. Randy Vogenberg, thank you so much for being on the Relentless Health Value Podcast today. My pleasure. Thank you. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.